Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They are experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today for a special episode of Superheroes of Science, we are here with Joe Topchesky, and he is a scientist from Corteva. So welcome, and thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a treat to uh, spend an afternoon here talking about a little bit of chemistry. Absolutely, and I, I just have to say that the topic, I think, today, well, I want to, can I just go ahead and say Today, you jump right okay. in. Okay, I'm excited because uh, you have, I think you're going to fill us in a little bit on um, pharmaceuticals. And maybe a little bit about well, I don't I don't want to I don't know exactly, but I'm very excited. I I was a very, that was a pathway I was really excited about when I was in college was maybe looking at um, research and development with pharmaceuticals. So I'm not really sure what your role in all of that was, but I think that was a topic we had discussed. Yeah, well, I mean, pharmaceuticals in general are are kind of a very complicated topic, and my area of expertise or my window into it is really through the synthetic chemistry that makes them available. Uh, and and you know, pharmaceuticals, I think a lot of times people think are just something you can go get off the shelf, and that's certainly true. You know, if you walk into a drugstore, there's shelves of over the counters, and then behind the pharmacy desk, you know, there's full shelves up there of all kinds of different pharmaceuticals. Um, but unlike a lot of consumer products, you know, those are completely different. So, you know, if you go from the store bag of potato chips to, you know, maybe the pretzels next door, a lot of the underlying ingredients are the same. You know, they were prepared different. Maybe one was baked, one was fried. Um, but when it comes to pharmaceuticals, they're completely different. So the starting materials are different. The methods to make them are different. Um, and that's true even within similar classes. So, you know, pretzels and potato chips we might put under junk food. Uh, that's prepared differently than vegetables and fruits and, and the produce section for sure. Um, but even within pharmaceuticals, you know, if you think about kind of over-the-counter pain medication, something like, uh, let's see here, you have Tylenol, you have aspirin, um, you have ibuprofen. So those are all different, acetaminophen, aspirin, and ibuprofen. Um, all those starting materials are completely different. So the underlying, you know, molecules that you have to start with to make aspirin, completely different than starting um, to make ibuprofen. And so that makes them, um, you know, very challenging sometimes in terms of the supply chain. And you see that sometimes with pharmaceutical shortages. So, uh, you know, that's an unfortunate reality is you have very complicated molecules. Some of the pharmaceuticals are prepared on a relatively small volume. Um, annually, and if demand spikes, they might not be able to come in and, and you know, fulfill a bigger demand instantly. It might take some time to scale up and produce more of that material because it's not the kind of thing you can just make more of immediately. Now, is that something that's a more of a recent problem, or is that always have always been a problem, and we just haven't necessarily heard about it if it hadn't impacted me personally? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, and I can't speak maybe industry-wide, but globally, just thinking about it, there's probably two things that are kind of crisscrossing, um, one of which is the molecular complexity of a pharmaceutical developed today is much, much, much greater than a pharmaceutical developed maybe 100 years ago. So, you know, a molecule like aspirin goes back to the, the late 1800s, and that molecule is incredibly simple. It's, it's one benzene ring with two functional groups, and it goes back very directly to feedstock chemicals that are produced on a really, really large industrial scale. 
Okay. Whereas a, a molecule, yeah, so it's basically it's two steps from, from petroleum, uh, depending on how you think about it. And so that's a very short synthesis, very big, big. So we're not going to run out of aspirin anytime soon. So we, we can rest. from petroleum. Yeah. Yep. Aspirin's like two steps from oil? Yeah, so uh, it's pretty weird, actually. So most modern pharmaceuticals are derived from specialty chemicals, and most specialty chemicals are derived from commodity chemicals. And most commodity chemicals come from crude oil in one form or another. Uh, and so what we do is pump oil out of the ground and refine it into a number of petroleum feedstocks. And then those petroleum feedstocks get utilized and converted into other molecules. And eventually those other molecules become the starting materials that we make chemicals, including pharmaceuticals from. And so in a very crude, very superficial way, uh, your you know, modern pharmaceuticals are essentially refined petroleum. Huh. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, I've learned something, my day's complete. <laughs> Um, and uh, I didn't realize that. I wouldn't have thought of it that way if I did, I guess. Yeah. And I don't know. I was thinking of simple questions like, hey, does your family introduce you? Like, hey, this is Joe. He makes drugs. Um, <laughs> Some of them do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so you laugh, but when I was a senior in high school, that's that was my goal. I, I wanted to make drugs. And my dad finally pulled me aside and he's like, listen, you've got to say that in a different way because it's a little <laughs> shocking to people sometimes <laughs> like dad i don't know what you mean but but i understand i mean yeah that's a kid versus oh, a kid. you're such a cute naive child <laughs> but so so how what drugs does he make first yeah okay, what yes, ones? yes 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 yeah. Oh, I actually make none, to be perfectly clear. Okay. So, I mean, I, I might work on a very small part of a molecule that might eventually be, be a drug. But uh, you're yeah. a scientist that works for a company that makes pharmaceuticals, then, right? Uh, technically, Corteva makes agrochemicals, but there, there's yeah. some overlap. So, yeah, Corteva is an agri-science firm. Uh, some of my prior research when I was a professor at the University of Minnesota was in medicinal chemistry. Um, for the record, I've never worked for a pharmaceutical company. Um, and so uh, most most of this is a somewhat outsider's perspective, I'll, I'll say on the ins and outs of pharmaceuticals specifically, but the, the overall conclusions are, are there, so. That's fair. Yeah. What could you say as to the, the amount of time that goes in? So whether it's a specialized agricultural chemical or, you know, clear to a, a really, well, a specialized drug of some kind, the amount of time that goes in from start to finish. So there's really two different starts to finishes. So, so when I clarify, we should think about whether it's the research and development um, timetable. So from the moment you go from an initial discovery that will eventually be a drug sometime in the future, um, or if you're talking about manufacturing the next batch of that drug. Um, because once that um, active molecule is FDA approved, you know people use it, it has a shelf life. And you know, we have to continuously resupply and make more of it. And the um, research and development timetable uh, often is decades. And sometimes there's a lot of revisions and detours and you have to go back and things might fail for a reason. Um, and then you might have to go back and re-revise them and see if you can get around that. Or maybe you know, it re fundamentally requires some other kind of chemistry or biology to come along to, to make it viable um, or to increase your understanding to a point where we're comfortable. Um, 
And, you know, the manufacturing timetable is often, thankfully a lot shorter. It doesn't take decades to, to make any active pharmaceutical agent, um, but it still can take months um, and, and maybe maybe a year in some very complicated molecules like halibut is an incredibly complicated molecule. Um, and part of the, the reason companies employ chemists like me is to shrink the cost of that production, as well as to streamline and make it more efficient, as well as to increase the purity of you know, the material at the end of the day. So uh, that, that purity is incredibly important, especially for something like a pharmaceutical. So if somebody is gonna be taking, let's say an allergy medication or a medication for heart disease or diabetes, um, they might be taking that drug every day for years, if not decades. And so it has to be incredibly high purity. Um, and so that, that purity is incredibly important at the end of the day. And who monitor, I'm sure there are internal um, quality checks in that, but who, is there some like agency that monitors that also out, outside of, of a company? Yeah, so setting the specifications for what that um, overall molecule and formulation should be is part of a regulatory package that in the United States would go to the Food and Drug Administration, so the FDA. They're, they're ultimately in charge of, um, you know, approving or denying a company's request to sell that molecule for a set set use. Um, and, and so the FDA overall is the, the federal agency that, you know, is in charge of um, drugs. That approval and denial, um, it, this might be a little bit off the wall, but uh, it, is it political sometimes or is it just safety only or? Um, it, what in, in my view, the, the employees at federal agencies do an above average job under very difficult situations. And so, I mean, they're, as a scientific arm of the federal government, it should be as apolitical and scientific as possible. Um, there, there are gray zones in any set of data, you know, so some things do work and they work very, very well. So, you know, the first time anybody had strep throat and got a Z-pack, to, to have antibiotics to clear up that infection, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty sure that one worked. Um, and then, you know, there are some things that are a lot harder to measure. So the impact of a drug, let's say on Alzheimer's, which is a very slow progressing, very long um, um, disease might be a very hard thing to measure objectively and as robustly. And so, you know, you have to be very cautious about how you're analyzing and viewing that data. Um, and that gets a lot into biostatistics, which will drift out of my realm of expertise. But, uh, you know, overall, I would say that they attempt to set very objective criteria of any clinical trial and then gauge the success or failure of that trial based on those objective uh, criteria. And those usually are defined well in advance. And so it's not like you get to the end and you say, you know, we're actually going to, this was okay. Um, so, so those get defined ahead of time and there's double blind protocols and um, it's, 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 it's relatively rigorous. And, um, and so at least I don't have any hesitation of taking any FDA approved pharmaceuticals for the disease that they're implicated in. So I, I trust my physician when the doctor says, take this, I'll, I'll say yes. You know, I might do some research on Wikipedia or WebMD or better yet, one of the other federal agencies. So I think a lot of people underappreciate how much information is freely available to them mm -hmm. on the federal government's webpage. 
Um, so a couple, as a, for instance, you know, uh, probably four years ago now, my mom got diagnosed with cancer. She's okay now she's in remission. Um, but, you know, as part of that diagnosis, you know, we were able to identify the type of cancer. And the first thing I did is I went to the National Cancer Institute's webpage and started reading about it right on the, the federal government's homepage. And so there, there's just a true wealth of information that's freely available to every American right there. And so you can look a lot of it up if you know how to click through it. And so that's that's really cool. So I don't know if that directly answers your question or not. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, it does. It Actually, does. it answered it a little better than I thought you would. Uh, it, that was a very, that was an excellent answer. Yeah. And uh, I think the fact that the statement that you made as a chemist who understands the chemistry behind pharmaceuticals, as someone who works in the industry to, to make sure the purification stuff, for you to make a statement, but the statement is that if the FDA has approved it, you have faith in that, yeah. is I think that speaks volumes. Yeah. Yep. So you had said, you had mentioned earlier when we were talking about that they're derived from petroleum and that some of these products are maybe there's only so much of them made in a year or something that might go into an end product that would be sold to a user, whether it's someone that needs to use that pharmaceutical or some other, you know, use is, does that drive cost with some of the pharmaceuticals that are produced? What, what, what all, what effects? Cause I know some pharmaceuticals are very costly and then some are eligible to have generics formed from them, but some, it seems like there's a period of time they aren't. Yep. Yeah, so this will this will be a slippery slope question. So so we <laughs> might have to trim the answer here. Yeah, yeah. Um, the way that pharmaceuticals are priced um, is a very complicated um, factor. And, and there are a lot of different kinds of drugs. You, you hinted at generics and you hinted at um, maybe a new molecule that's not eligible for a generic. Um, and so, you know, as part of the research and development that goes into producing a new pharmaceutical, um, companies are eligible to file a patent on that molecule. Um, and the US government it provides that and the issued patent effectively becomes a, a monopoly that the company owns that and nobody else can sell it. And the government for a long time has given that to certain entities as a way of encouraging research and development. And the reason for that is it, it'll cost the pharmaceutical company hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to bring that molecule from somebody's idea to something that patients can take. And, and the reason for that is they have to employ uh, dozens, if not hundreds of scientists for decades potentially to be able to do that. And so there's a very high cost of running animal trials, running clinical trials, running laboratory trials, um, and investing in the manufacturing. So even if we knew what to make, you know, you still have to build a plant, you still have to buy the material to actually produce that goods. Um, and so the pie chart of the costs, you know, some, some wedge of it is marketing, some wedge of it is CEO salaries, some wedge of it is R&D, some wedge of it is shareholder profits. Um, and I don't know where all of those wedges of the, the pie chart fit, but certainly there's a lot that goes into it. And um, it's no secret, I would say, that pharmaceutical companies charge a lot for things that are on patent. And part of the reason for that is that's their, their window. As long as it's on patent, they basically are the only ones that can sell it. And if it's really good, they can charge what they want for it. Um, and so we can 
debate if that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, but that's kind of the way the system works. Yeah. Once the patent expires, because the government says you get this monopoly, but you only get it for so long, and after that, everybody gets to use it. Okay. And so once that patent expires, then companies can come by and um, develop a generic, and the generic has to be the same thing, and it has to match the same specifications, uh, but it's no longer manufactured by the same company that originally filed the patent or own, owns the patent, I should clarify, because companies can sell patents. So, you know, it might not be the same company that originally developed it. Um, but once that happens, then there's no longer a monopoly. And so the price usually drops. Um, and part of that cost is reflected in how expensive it is to make. And part of it is a function of other political factors, other regulatory factors, um, yeah, that goes quite broadly. And and uh, yeah, so th there's a lot of policy that goes into it. There's a lot of economics that goes into it. Um, if you ask me point blank, do I think most pharmaceuticals cost too much? I would say depends on the pharmaceutical. So, you know, you can go to your drugstore and buy a tablet, a store brand aspirin. It probably cost you a couple of bucks and you'll be paying a penny or two per tablet. So that to me is very cheap. That's very low cost. Um, most generic antibiotics, amoxicillin, penicillin, azithromycin kind of packs are, are quite cheap. Um, and then you end up with some modern cancer drugs, which are quite expensive for the latest and, and greatest patented drug that might be exorbitantly expensive. So I forgot which hepatitis drug came out a couple of years ago that was exhaustively scrutinized for, because the, the cost build for, for the whole regime, I think was in the seventy to eighty thousand dollar course treatment, so yeah, it was very expensive. Like I said, I'm not an economics person at all, but uh, I do understand. I mean, it, yeah. some of these, when it's as you mentioned, might take decades to develop, right? And so right. Uh, I don't like it when it costs me very much to get a prescription. But it, I mean, it's it sure beats the alternative. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I owe a little bit of debt because of some of ours, but it's, you know, it's, it's what kind of what you have to do to develop and obtain that medicine. Well, and I would think probably continue encouraging those medicines to be developed, medicines like yeah. that to be developed. No one's going to do it. No one's going to any up the money if they can't make the money. Back. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's the, that's the rough side. Yeah. Of it, right? Yeah. I think it is. It's definitely one of the arguments that there's a little bit of a greed argument pushing the other direction and the truth likely is somewhere between the two. I mean, I think in the one perfect world, you know, but, um, yep. Now, but I'm not an economist. I'm not a business person. Yeah. Uh, I'm a mere bench chemist as it were. So that's all <laughs> over my pay grade. Now you had mentioned, uh, again, so back to these, um, they kind of are rooted in this like oil-based or petroleum-based um, kind of where they're, they're, they begin. And, how does that then uh, factor into like like waste that gets generated from the production of these pharmaceuticals, or is yeah, there like recycling of material? I don't. I don't. Know. I would not have thought to go there. Huh? Yeah, put him on spot. <laughs> <laughs> what are you say about that, Joe? So uh, let, let me clarify one thing. Okay. So uh, and that is not all pharmaceuticals are strictly defined for petroleum. Yeah. Most are, most are. So within the pharmaceutical space, we would probably define biologics. Those are things like um, 
vaccines, antibodies, um, especially monocolloidal antibodies, um, other biologics kind of fall in there. And then we have kind of small molecules, and those are things typically with a molecular weight under a thousand um, AMUs, and th those then can be kind of put into maybe three categories. So one of which would be fully synthetic, and, and that would be the majority of the compounds people, people take. So aspirin, ibuprofen, um, Tylenol, uh, th those are fully synthetic. A lot of the over-the-counter drugs are fully synthetic, and um, a large percentage of uh, prescribed medications are also fully synthetic. There are then some molecules that are directly as they were in nature. And so penicillin and amoxicillin, uh, sorry, penicillin for sure is directly a natural product that people found, did a really good job killing bacteria and you know, saving people from bacterial infections. Um, and there are other natural products. So the one, another one would be Taxol, which is commonly prescribed for cancer. Um, and so that is a true natural product and it is given to people as it exists in nature. It might not be fully from that um, sequence, um, but, but it, it is a natural product. Uh, and then there's a, a space in between that we might call semi-synthetics. So something like penicillin, uh, is really good, sort of, but it had a lot of problems. And so we decided to take a little piece of it off and put something else on. And we kept the core of the penicillin and we just kind of changed a little bit on the end. And that's where you get to something like amoxicillin. Um, so it's very similar to penicillin, um, but it's not quite the natural penicillin. It's got, got a little chemistry tweak to it. Um, and the same is true with uh, erythromycin going to azithromycin. So another antibiotic going to a semi-synthetic antibiotic. Um, and so the semi-synthetic steps all involve petroleum inputs and feedstocks, but the, the natural products um, don't always necessarily. And sometimes we can produce those by fermentation. And so uh, Merck was really good at scaling up some of the fermentation batches early on. I believe for penicillin, I might have to double check the history on that, but I believe Mark was one of the scalers up. Uh, and here in Indiana, Eli Lilly has a, a bunch of biochemistry that they do as well um, it, through fermentations to scale up um, uh, a number of antibiotics. So uh, that, that's kind of there. And then, you know, when we think about the, the waste, which is what you asked about, um, you know, the waste is one component of the sustainability, but the inputs are, are another aspect of it. And we wanna do our best to minimize both of those. Uh, and so some of the inputs are very high energy reagents and, and some of them might be hazardous or toxic chemicals. Certainly, you know, pre-1975, it was a lot easier to use almost whatever you wanted in, when making things. Um, and, and you might end up with some very hazardous waste as a result of that. But chemists over the last 50 years have really tried to develop reagents and conditions to do the same reactions under more mild conditions with safer reagents with um, less hazardous inputs. And so that's really a good chunk of focus of modern uh, chemistry is trying to come up with better reactions that work cleaner um, and utilize safer starting materials. Uh, when you think about the waste, that, that's its own, um, it's, its own kind of issue to be concerned with. And there too, we wanna think both about the sheer volume of the waste that one produces, but also how hazardous is it and how easy is it to control or um, re reduce or reuse or recycle. 
there's a current standard um, across the industry. So the American Chemical Society has a subsection called the um, Green Chemistry Institute. So, so they're focused specifically on developing more green methods. And they have a pharmaceutical chemistry roundtable that is um, sponsored from a number of major pharmaceutical companies um, that are all interested in making their own um, chemistry more sustainable. And I used to tell people that um, green chemistry really has, has two connotations, um, one of which is green for the planet, like leaves and trees and grass. And we love that green. The other green is dollar bills. Okay. And as long as the incentive to help those two matches, everybody is in agreement. Um, and the reason for that is if you can do the exact same chemistry, but use half the stuff, that's going to save you the requirement to buy all of that other half. Mm. Um, and so that'll directly affect companies' bottom line just by using less. Um, and the same is true with, if they can recycle a lot of um, the things that they otherwise would throw away or, or get rid of. Um, and most of the waste that comes out of most of these processes is organic waste. And most of it ends up being incinerated. Uh, and the reason for that is a lot of it is organic chemicals uh, and they're solvents predominantly. And those things turn out burn really well. We actually put organic solvents in the gas tank every time you swing by a gas station to fill up your car. Um, and so that's the exact same organic solvent that we use in the lab. Um, and so it's not surprising that when it's done, you can burn it. And uh, places are pretty efficient at not only burning it to minimize the amount of waste that gets other, otherwise needs disposed of, but that also produces energy for their facility if they capture the energy out of it, right? So you burn that um, gasoline in your car so that your car goes forward, but a plant might burn that and drive a steam turbine to either generate electricity or do some other work around the plant or the facility. And so people have been trying to design in um, that level of greenness for a long time, because instead of shipping that waste away and paying for somebody else to deal with it, you can incinerate it and, and generate some value in terms of energy right there on your own plant. So when possible, I think that's still the dominant way. Um, and within the community, we even try to formalize this and, and use a way to push things um, in a positive direction. And so the metric of choice is what is called process mass intensity. Um, and this is simply defined as uh, the total amount of stuff needed to make your, your drug or your pharmaceutical over the amount of pharmaceutical made. Um, and we define a set volume for the stuff made is a default one kilogram. So, uh, you know, you might have one kilogram of total materials in over one kilogram of stuff out. That would be perfect, right? So that would be 100%. Everybody would be happy. Everything that goes in comes out as, as uh, pharmaceutical on the other side and there's zero waste and there's no energy. And so that's the perfect case scenario. As you put more inputs in there, you know, you might end up with a less efficient process. And then, you know, maybe you have a number that's around a thousand. Um, and generally the community tries to be better than a thousand to one. And so roughly that's what, what you think. Um, and so a little, little tablet of a pharmaceutical, uh, you know, you want to think about a thousand times that volume maybe in terms of material that was needed to make that pharmaceutical. Um, and that would be roughly on average for a, a new new molecule. Um, older, simpler molecules, something like aspirin, the number might be three oh. or, or two and a half. I don't actually know what aspirins is, but it's low. It's, it's a very simple molecule and it's directly from those feedstock chemicals. 
And so we make aspirin incredibly efficiently. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, but other more modern chemicals, other you know are very complicated might be many 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 steps and every one of those steps might need to be um, purified um, and so as part of that you know you might have a very high number now the best way we drive that number down because most of the time in the R&D pipeline when you first make that very initial sample that PMI might be a hundred thousand or a million so let's just sink that in for a little, little bit of a compound. You might use a million times as much stuff um, to make the initial samples. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. The chemistry used to make it initially might be focused on making a lot of similar things and it might not be fully optimized. And maybe you had you know, uh, a whole bunch of things you're putting together in a linear fashion instead of clicking two equal halves together at the very end. Um, so the, the chemistry is gonna fundamentally change. And that's part of why, again, it takes so many chemists to figure this out. It's because as part of that R&D process, you usually typically redo completely um, the synthesis between how you very first made it all the way to how it ends up being made the most efficiently at the very end. Um, and so, yeah, you're looking at orders of magnitude reduction and, and ways to get there. Huh. I like that. I do too, that's right. Now, the petro uh, we use petroleum because there's so many different chemicals in it already. Um, we, we use it because it's kind of the, the base feed stack for a lot of things. So it's not only petroleum. I mean, we use minerals as well. Um, but all the, you know, nature only provides organic molecules in so many different ways. So in food, we usually talk about carbohydrates and fats and proteins. Um, but most of the molecules around us are not aromatic hydrocarbons. And it turns out we use a lot of aromatic hydrocarbons for um, pharmaceutical development and uh, a lot of aromatic hydrocarbons are in, are in uh, pharmaceuticals. And so we end up functionalizing those with chemistry that was actually developed all the way back in the 1800s initially, um, really with a focus on making dyes. And so there are some books that I've read about how the um, push to come up with dyes for clothing is really kind of the, the genesis of the modern pharmaceutical market. Um, and so if you're interested in that, you can go back to read there. So indigo is kind of uh, held up on a little bit of a special pedestal. Um, and, and so, you know, you can thank your blue jeans, if you will, <laughs> in a way. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of interest in making dyes of different colors, especially bright, vibrant dyes. And then eventually somebody said, you know, what else could, could we use this stuff for? And we kind of went down a rabbit hole in, in pharmaceuticals. So Tur turns out 150 years later, the pharmaceuticals are worth way more than the dyes. But, you know, who knew? So <laughs> I read that's interesting. You say that, that now that you say that, I read a book a long time ago, but it was about mauve. And, um, and, and that, that was a very, and I, and I want to say it was a teenager, maybe, that stumbled upon that um long long time ago about the synthesis for that color but um but that's that's really cool yeah i forgot i forgot that it was you know began as, as a synthesis for dice so. yep yep yeah and or modifying natural mo molecules so uh, aspirin is thought to kind of be natural product inspired i mean we make it fully from petroleum uh, but it goes back to willow tree bark extracts uh, that, that people have been using. And it's a more efficient form of salicin, which is a natural product. So that's kind of interesting that way. 
Well, it is. I mean, that's really cool to think about. I mean, we're synthesizing or yeah. remaking and then making it more efficient for a particular purpose, mm-hmm. something from nature, getting our ideas for medicine and chemistry from nature. Mm-hmm. I think it's awesome. Mm-hmm. But uh, for you to make it th- something that, that more, more pure, mm-hmm. uh, you said earlier that it's, that's one of the things, and I'm, can you how I mean I don't know in my head I think okay you make you mix these chemicals they do the reaction you pull this out and that's your that's your medicine or whatever but uh, it, it, obviously it's simplified I see that look <laughs> <laughs> he's no, like what did he just say <laughs> but uh, how so what what do you, what kinds of things do you have to do to make a substance more pure so um you know, most of our chemical reactions are some A plus B goes to C plus D, you know, and really might be A, B, and C plus E and F go to, you know, a bunch of other letters, um, which is really kind of how it actually goes. There's a lot of letters. Um, but the the gist is that, you know, we're interested in one of those products and not all of the other products. Um, and so you have to separate out what the desired product is from everything else, including the, the solvent. So, you know, you might run that reaction in an organic solvent and, you know, your actual pharmaceutical agent can't have residual, let's say, toluene in it. Toluene is, um, you know, anybody who's put together a, a plastic model in the 80s knows the smell of toluene from, from the glue that you used to be able to have. Um, so, but, you know, you don't want to expose people to that. In the, so you have to get out all the solvent. Um, you have to dry it really carefully to make sure that there's not a little bit of water in there. And, and so to do that, really, there's probably three major purification techniques that one could think about. Um, the first of which is to distill something. And this is how petroleum is originally purified. Um, you know, you, you take a mixture of complicated things and you start heating it. And eventually they separate based on their boiling points and you condense them. Distillation is the same way people make moonshine or, or other things. So it's the same general process. And so if you're distilling, you know, grain alcohol, you're going to distill at alcohol and water at the azeotrope of alcohol and water, and you'll collect what comes over and everything else stays behind um, in a perfect world. Um, you know, different liquids have different boiling points and you can utilize that to separate them. The other of which is what we usually do, and that is called a crystallization. So a lot of pharmaceuticals are solids, and sometimes we have to work very hard to figure out exactly how to get them to solidify. Um, But we're going to try to pack those molecules together in some organized array that eventually forms a crystal. And uh, as part of doing that, you know, that ordered array um, needs to be flawless to, to build up to be a crystal of some macro structure. And uh, as part of that, you reject all of the impurities. So for anybody who's played with a whole bunch of Lego blocks, you'll know they go together some ways and they don't go together very well the other way. Um, and, and nature kind of has a similar thing with crystallizations. Um, and that's a lot easier said than done. But the idea is, um, you know, you're, you're trying to separate things based on their shape and the things that don't fit kind of stay in the solution and the things that do fit kind of come out. Um, and that works pretty well, but going back to my Lego analogy, uh, you know, the ability to stack them might not have anything to do with the color of the blocks, 
right? And so we might have some molecules that are so close together that just stacking them in a crystal doesn't quite separate them quite the way that we want to. Um, and for that, we usually turn to chromatography, um, which is kind of a, a weird process where you basically have a tube of some kind packed full of a material and you make a solution of your stuff and you stream it across that column. And some stuff comes out really quickly and some stuff kind of gets stuck in the middle and then slowly might move and you separate stuff based on how quick it comes out of the bottom of the tube, which might sound ridiculous, um, but you can kind of think about it as maybe different people going down uh, um, uh, a line of folks to introduce themselves to or shake hands. You know, if you're an introvert like me, you might make it as quick of an interaction as possible with everybody else to go find the munchies down the hall. Um, but it, maybe if you're an extrovert, you want to spend and learn something about every person in line and have a nice long conversation before you hop to the next person. So as an introvert, I might stream off that column. Um, but as an extrovert, you know, you might progress very slowly down the line. And, and molecules do the same way based on whatever that interaction is. Um, so yeah, it can be quite different. Now, if you want to talk to me about, you know, chemistry, I'm going to stop and talk to every person and ask all kinds of questions, whereas the average extrovert is going to stream right down the line looking for, for the snacks. <laughs> um, and so uh, what, what we would call there is that's a polarity reversal. So we can separate compounds based on their polarity. And I might be the, the nonpolar person that streams off the first way. But if you flip that column around, I might stick to it quite well. Um, and so we have a lot of different tricks for, for that. Chromatography is its own, own very um, mature subdiscipline of chemistry. And there are full people that are trained to do that way better than me. So, uh, but, but that is a huge area of separation science and purification. All right. <laughs> Let me ask you, what's your favorite molecule? Oh my goodness. Um, the chemist. That's I, he, an I, awesome you're, question. You're a chemist. That's a I'm great like, question. <laughs> well, as I sit here sipping my, my coffee, I might be tempted to, to say caffeine that gives me the morning boost. Um, but, but I'm going to go with um, vanillin, which is a simple aromatic benzaldehyde. That's the essence of vanilla. And so one of the first reactions I did in graduate school was to take vanillin, um, which we bought from Aldrich Chemical, specifically in kosher food grade vanillin, um, and we brominated it to make a starting material that I used for the total synthesis that, that I did as part of my PhD. Um, and uh, I liked doing that reaction on a really probably bigger scale than I needed to, um, but it's because the whole lab smelled like cookies for a couple hours after I was done with it. And so um, that was a good good reason to, to get out the jar of vanillin. It's the first time I've asked someone. That something is like awesome. That. I, I, I I'm like, that. he's gotta have a favorite. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what got you excited about chemistry? Um, you know, there, there are a lot of different things. So one of which was, I, I actually originally went to college to try to be a veterinarian. I already showed you my, my dog. So I'm a dog person, which is okay. But that was the original goal of going to college was to, to take care of other people's pets and to have a really good excuse to have my own. Um, but I got distracted because chemistry, um, well, the, the term that I think people would like to say is that chemistry is the central science. Um, and, and so it fits, it's a little bit more theoretical than biology. So biology, it turns out is a messy discipline. There, there's, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. Biological systems are very complex, right? And then there's chemistry and then there, there's physics. And uh, 
physics is very theoretical at times. It's very math and equation um, focused. Uh, it turns out my personality is best suited in the middle. Uh, I like just enough theory to be able to be dangerous, um, but not enough theory where it's obvious that I'm wrong all the time. Uh, and so chemistry gets to be the, the sweet spot in the middle where I get to play around and tinker um, without needing an equation to tell me it won't work, um, but enough theory to guide me where I'm not just stumbling around sometimes. And so please, that was kind of the, the fit I found in chemistry. Um, but definitely when I tell most people I'm an organic chemist, they say, that's interesting. And do you want to <laughs> <laughs> you know, either that or they tell me how they hated that class in college which yeah, is, i get that a lot yeah i get well, that yeah. get that a lot which is too bad because i know um, that's why I, I had a great experience with it but i think i think at times it can depend on how it's presented when uh, yeah. you, the first time you see yep. it and um and yeah. i you know i don't know yeah i think unfortunately the subdiscipline focused on naming and named reactions way too much so i, I used to joke with my students that uh I, I screw up nomenclature all the time. If you like, honestly, if you gave me the uh, nomenclature part of an MCAT, I'd get it all wrong. Oh. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't like, and today it's so simple. If I draw a structure in ChemDraw, which is the program we use to draw most of our structures, all I have to do is go circle, convert structure to name, and it spits it out there. So, um, yeah. Nice. Now they did not have that. When, oh, yeah, for sure. When yeah. We're going through. So, yeah. <laughs> I would love but it now. I don't know how to name anything. I, I like Kendra to tell me how to name stuff. <laughs> yep. Like spell. Well, most, we're losing our, we're losing our ability like to spell entirely because it just fixes it for me. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, we appreciate. Did you have anything else? I don't know. Probably no. I, I, oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like I can I didn't want to shut you down there. entirely. Yeah. No, no, no. If I did, I wanted to know I did. Yeah. Okay. But I feel a little better. No, you're, this is good. Rats. Okay. Uh, <laughs> This has been awesome. Yes, this has been fun. We've yeah. enjoyed this. It, this has been enlightening. Yeah. Uh, it, the whole uh, petroleum thing. Yeah. And I never, I never would have guessed that. Yeah. I just would. I guess I don't know why. I. Mm -hmm. I mean, all you chemists are involved with all the drugs and stuff, so I should have known. But no, it's huh. Yeah. That's cool. I feel like we kind of fixated on that. Well, a little More bit we did, didn't we? Didn't we? Yeah, <laughs> we got stuck on it a little bit. I'm sorry, but it's it's fascinating. So yeah, we should clarify it's not a one-step process. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, far from. Yeah, I know we've we've talked to like uh, Betsy yeah. uh, Parkinson. Who, yeah. She yeah, she has antibiotics from soil culture. She does mm -hmm. cultures and soils yep. and stuff. She's in chemistry department over there, and so uh, it's I, I'd known about that. Yeah. But I guess I just never thought about where where the chemicals come to make things, and I I think most of us don't think or realize because we don't think about it mm -hmm. that things are made from chemicals. Yeah, you know they're they're just like chemicals. They're in a jar or test tube or something. Yep. But no, it's like everything's made of chemicals. Well, I had a friend that was really interested in uh, in in perfumes, and it's the no, same yeah. idea that it's you're starting with these petroleum based things and then working them and then you get to perfumes yep. things i mean that's and, and that's just one example I mean, there's lots of other it's yeah i think it's yeah my wife has yelled at me at many farmers markets for asking the person who has chemical free this or that what what exactly that means and, yes 
I've gotten myself into trouble a little bit, but you're wow. correct. If you, if you can see it, touch it, or taste it, it's a chemical. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say yeah. there's some things you can't say to a chemist. Absolutely. No, I completely understand. I know. Like when you say this, <laughs> yeah. No, I I understand what you're saying. I love that. You can say additive free, you can say, you know, pesticide free, I'm okay with that, but chemical free, gonna be, gonna be hard to eat that chemical free apple. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for putting up with us for a while. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. It was a good excuse for me to come out of the office and uh, hang out doing something a little bit different in the afternoon. So. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Boiler up! Hammer down!